0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include...
1: Hybridizing Gumshoe. Pat Garrett's Murder. Will Hindmarch. And
0: the Beast of Gavudan.
1: Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror.
0: Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two
1: inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in
0: R'lyeh. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser.
1: To promote Lost in Relay's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins.
0: Buy Lost in Relay at a brick and mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something. That's why they're Protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost and Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash to request your card. There's also a link in the show
1: notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. It's time once again to Ask Ken and Robin, so let's Ask Ken and Robin. Jason Carter, Patreon backer, asks Ken and Robin, how would you combine the wonderful investigative puzzle solving of the gumshoe engine, and congratulations, Jason, on knowing the format for Ask Ken and Robin, with the <laughs> combat resolution of other game lines, such as the cinematic action of Feng Shui? You're over-egging the pudding there a little, Jason. Back it up.
0: <laughs> Excellent taste and example there, Jason. Right. Well done. Well
1: done. Uh, I, I would say that the Russian judge even would give it an 8.5. And, and he patronizes us for this, not the other he way does. around. He does. That's the best part. Yeah. Well done, Jason. A round of
0: golf claps. Where the covert self-promotion of the rest of the show is replaced by the overt self Overt self-promotion. self-promotion of Jason Carter's question. Yes. So, uh, the question is how to take the gumshoe approach to investigation and... Weld it to the uh, combat and uh, I would assume other action doing things uh, rules of, I know, the rule set, for example, Feng Shui. Uh, and there are two main issues with that. Uh, but uh, luckily, there aren't 14 main issues because Gumshoe is designed to be modular and to have the general abilities of gumshu, the fighting and find- deciding whether you've uh, actually got the crowbar in your trunk and uh, the setting up the surveillance system abilities versus the uh, investigative abilities, the finding stuff out abilities. They are purposely designed to be modular for two reasons. One, in order to uh, showcase, uh, especially in the early days, what was different about gumshoe and to focus it on investigation and make sure that that was a part of the rules that uh, stood out. But also, indeed, if you want to take the other engine of your choice and bolt it onto uh, gumshoe, for fights or running away from uh, Chagaths or cyber monkeys, as the case may be. It was all set up in order for you to be able to do that. So, the two issues are, let's see if I can remember them now. One, the cost of the different abilities when you are designing characters. And secondly, pacing the adventures. So, the cost issue is, basically, I think what you want to do is take the list of gumshoe investigative abilities that you want to use in your game. And for here, we don't necessarily know whether you want to take a gumshoe setting and feng shuiize it, or whether you have your own setting. Uh, It's pretty simple in case A. You just take the investigative abilities that the setting calls for. The other case, you would have to sit down and go, well, do I want a lot of different abilities, the way that, say, esoteric does, where it assumes everybody is sort of a forensics expert of some kind, and you have all these fine-grained versions of the forensics abilities. Or do you want to go more for like Fear Itself or Guy and Reach where there's many fewer investigative abilities because it's more about a streamlined experience? And I guess part of the question there is are these butt-kickers who occasionally investigate things, or investigators who occasionally kick butt? So, you're going to have to make a, a decision there. Take the uh, formula from your favorite gumshoe game as to how many players there are versus how many points uh, are spent on X number of abilities. And if, if you've radically changed the number of abilities uh, in a way that doesn't match any particular gumshoe game, you will need to kind of back-figure the math on that. Uh, we're not going to do math on the show, are we, Ken? No. This is uh, We have been promised no math. So that, So basically... The main thing about character generation is making sure that everybody has the same number of points to draw from to build their investigative abilities on top of whatever the uh, other rule set is. Uh, feng Shui 2 is simpler in that it has no character generation system. <laughs> it has a pick your darn archetype and get started. You could also, however, in Feng Shui 2, it has many fewer information gathering abilities but it, it uh actually even the 96 one says you know what? If you need the information to move through the story, do that. So, even the original feng shui had a bit of a uh, pre-gumshu prefiguration in it.
1: It's it's a shame we'll never know the 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 creator of the original feng shui. That that nameless genius has passed into obscurity. <laughs> yeah. But that yeah. happens
0: yeah. in gaming. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Um, so so basically, the uh, you know the simpler answer is you can just import the gumshu way of doing things, the way the rules already tell you to. But I, I assume that you're looking for. More of a clue gathering, puzzling, figuring out, and then uh, car chases and explosions. Now, Ken, uh, I assume this is sort of a Robin question. This first bit, and not necessarily it. It, it seems
1: sort of Robin-y because you are the designer of both uh, the wonderful investigative Gumshoe engine and the cinematic action of Feng Shui. I'm, you know, you have answered it in uh, more detail than I necessarily would have answered, Jason Carter. Which is, take the game that you are already playing, whatever that is. And just rule that investigative abilities always work, and then you're done. And you and you can do that with anything. You can do that with uh with the quotidian horror of Call of Cthulhu, with the uh satin uh mass murder of vampire, you can do it with any kind of game that you want. All you do is you just say if you are doing an investigative act defined as it is in Gumshoe, by which we mean finding the core clue with which you need the system to move forward, or the game to move forward, it works. And all you have to have is a dot. And if you have more dots or more numbers or more percents or more levels or more pluses or however you measure things, then you do it more often or you can do it better or you can do it to get a spend. Or for the fancy spend type benefits, that's when the roll comes in if people are still in love with their dice. Because the core activity of gumshoe is giving you the core clues so you can move through the story and thus empowering the uh, players to feel like boss and empowering the GM to create a story that can be more involving and more complex and also produce a reliable conflict or climax at the point at which it's supposed to produce those things as opposed to everyone faffing around the train station all night.
0: Now, the the second bit, the the trickier bit, is one I think you can probably help me speak to, which is pacing. Because the pacing of an investigative session and one of a cinematic action session are actually quite different Uh, in uh, the typical gumshoe system you've basically got this big uh, kind of superstructure of information laid out and the players have a lot of freedom in deciding uh, if it's a well-wrought adventure at any rate they have a lot of freedom in deciding which direction to go in next in terms of you know who am I going to talk to I've got this number of leads okay how about we go over here and then as you get to sort of the end of the scenario again things tend to like narrow toward a final scene in which you put all the information together and then whatever consequences of that uh, rain down on you or or you cause to rain down on others Uh, whereas the structure of a feng shui game is here's three cool fights against uh different but probably related opponents which occur in three cool different places and here's just enough plot to get you from fight a to fight b to fight c because that's what an action movie does, basically, and so a typical feng shui session will be, you know, either one or two of those fights, or maybe three if you uh, have enough time and you're good at uh, running the fights quickly. Or uh, whereas gung shu, you've got, you know, mostly investigation, and then sometimes, uh, you know, you will have a, a lengthier uh, fight. So one thing that I think you would want to be aware of, I don't know if I have a fix for it, is that. Uh, your game is going to radically sort of shift paces back and forth between the two things, between the contemplating and thinking of figuring out the mystery to the wild action and improvisation of feng shui. And you're also going to have timing issues where you're not necessarily sure where you're going to be able to drop a fight into the mystery. I'm assuming that if you're doing gumshoe that you want to have a complex mystery, and that means your control as a GM over when the next big fight occurs is somewhat more limited. So you probably want to, first of all, have a group of players who attend reasonably well. Uh, you do, this is, would not be a setup for something where people are constantly dropping in and out. Otherwise, you would have a situation where player A does all the investigation, misses out on the fight that happens next week, and then player B shows up and, oh, there's a fight without a context. And he missed all the investigation related to that.
1: And that gets even worse if player A is the fighty one and player B is the investigating one. Right.
0: Although in this, the assumption here is that everybody is investigating and fighty.
1: Yeah. But I mean that they enjoy doing oh, it. Oh, yes. Not that their character is built or optimized right. to do it. Although, you know, again, in a, in a, this, could, this could be a thing that you introduce into a superheroes type game where the only character that works on gumshoe is Batman, Right. You've got your your group of players, and Batman has gumshoe. Everyone else is still playing Hero or Mutants and Masterminds or whatever they're playing. And if Batman is not in the scene, the Batmanist character takes on the role of Batman. So if Batman is not there, Elongated Man, who is the ductile detective, has gumshoe powers. And if Batman and Elongated Man are not there, then, you know, it goes down to Robin or whoever, you know, and and you, you figure out which of the characters uses that as their superpower because obviously in the big slap around super fight, Batman is, uh, by most rules systems, uh, far more useless than he is in real life. And so you want to provide him with that, um, uh, that character moment, and the player who's playing Batman, one assumes is sort of used to sitting on the sidelines and uh, tossing the occasional uh, smoke bomb while everyone with a power ring actually slaps Galactus around or whatever it is that you're doing. And so uh, that gives you a Batman spotlight, so you can introduce Gumshoe into a part of a game uh, as opposed to or on a character-by-character basis if the game is solely about the character- uh, heroism in the way that a superhero's game is.
0: Right. A- another way to do that with Feng Shui is to look at the archetypes and set up your mysteries so that the associated abilities related with people's combat abilities are also the ones required to serve, say, solve the mystery. So that if you've got you know, the swordsman character, one of the main pivotal clues is about who constructed a given sword or that a sword is counterfeit. Whereas, and then the full metal netball is the one who uh, identifies the source of the exotic explosive that you find on the scene after the the last battle, so that you are um, tying things to the combat specialties of the different characters, so it doesn't seem like quite a weirdo shift to have you know because to have everybody be a private detective and also uh, an ass kicker of, of various uh, degrees. Um, but other than that, basically, that you would have to the, the answer is that you'll need to have a high tolerance and more importantly your your players will have to have a buy-in on the idea that it suddenly the, the game really shifts and the pacing may not uh work as well as uh as it would if you were purely working in uh Gumshoe and anything else and that's true of any other thing that you want to bolt Gumshoe onto whether it's something very uh detailed and and crunchy like Gurps or even something uh, much simpler like uh you know HeroQuest or uh, Fade or whatever.
1: I, I think that we are now beginning to restate each other's points, which argues to me that we have combined the wonderful puzzle solving of the Gum Show Engine with a podcast segment.
0: So I guess uh, in that case, I'm going to spend a point of entrepreneurship and realize that we need to have a commercial and then another segment, and that other segment just might have some historical investigating in it.
1: Dun dun dun.
0: Do intervals between Ken's Time Machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time
1: Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its
0: way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty Velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure! Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic
1: anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart
0: your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse. History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the
1: time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers.
0: So, gather round the old old butte, the old mesa, as it were, saddle up your horse, get ready for some uh, western information as we enter a particular Old West edition of the History Hut. And this is uh also uh, sort of about the dying of the west it's a, a story that is like kind of a real life a later day latter day revisionist western about the the death of the gunslinger and weirdly i'm not sure if this part of this very famous story has ever been told on film but everybody knows well not everybody knows cuz i'm going to get you to explain in a bit ken that the <laughs> well, i'm going to assume that perhaps one of you in the back of the car doesn't know that Billy the Kid, the famous uh, Western outlaw, was uh, brought to uh, justice and shot by uh, one Pat Garrett, who at the time was both a a deputy sheriff and a marshal, uh, giving him uh, room to maneuver. And he uh, took down Billy the Kid. And 27 years later, he himself died by the gun. So before we get to uh, the end of the life of Pat Garrett, because it's what this segment is about the shooting of pat garrett or the murder of pat garrett depending on how you want to look at it i think i think we can look at it as a murder yes uh, <laughs> well the the uh, the murderer said it was self defense and yes, we, we well, don't believe the, them but we'll, we're getting alleged ahead of the our...
1: murderer said because he was found dead yeah, never right
0: anyway we're, we're getting we're getting ahead of ourselves so let's get in front of ourselves by can you want to give the quick uh history of um Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett before we get to the the sad end part.
1: All right. Um, Pat Garrett uh, of Patrick Floyd Jarvis, which is why he went by Pat Garrett, was one of those people who, when there was work to be done as a cowboy roustabout gunman for hire, did that. And when there was work to be done as a lawman, did that. And the the twain kept meeting all the time. He would deputize or or put people into his posse uh, who he had ridden uh, uh, for perhaps uh, less than socially valuable intent with in previous times. So he moved back and forth between that world uh, pretty effectively. So he's born in 1850. He's uh, a little too young for the Civil War. He winds up, like a lot of people who are a little too young for the Civil War, traveling west and winds up in Lincoln County, New Mexico, being voted uh, sheriff,
0: he looks the part. He's a big, tall guy.
1: Yeah, he's enormous. He's like six foot four or five uh, in an era when most people are below six feet. It's this is before, you know, uh, everyone gets enough uh, milk as a as a baby to make their strong bones grow. So giant guy.
0: Yes. And less unusually for the period has an impressive mustache. Um, True. One uh, which everyone will look at him. They wouldn't just go hipster because everyone aspired for those uh, mustaches at the time. <laughs>
1: yes. No, this was f- this was uh, pre-hipster, yeah. although one perhaps uh, wonders if older people were angry that they didn't have a beard.
0: Uh, yes, that could be it. That's These right. These kids today Brian, the, and their lack the of beards. With their,
1: with their just mustaches hanging around their coffee shop. Buying coffee at it instead of just bourbon. So at any any rate, uh, Lincoln County, New Mexico is riven by a range war between the guy who owns the town, uh, who is a subsidiary of what is called the Santa Fe Ring, the large corrupt Uh, Republican Territorial Administration in New Mexico, and another rancher named John Chisholm, uh, famous for the movie Chisholm, in which I believe he is played by John Wayne, who lives in the southeastern part of New Mexico and wants to graze cattle and do things without being pestered by Santa Fe all the time. And he sponsors... First, rival grocery stores, which is what begins the Lincoln County War, and then... Previously known as the Piggly Wiggly War. It was called that, but then they realized that they had a really cool county name. If it, had, if it had been Jarvis County, it would still be the Piggly Wiggly War to this day. But he sponsors a rival grocery store, and around that rival grocery store accretes a gang of gunmen and toughs, like, like you do with a grocery store. Yeah. And that gang of gunmen and toughs goes up against the other gang of gunmen and toughs that the Santa Fe Ring has sent in to enforce the iron rule of the other grocery store. And amongst the gang of toughs sent in by John Chisholm is Billy the Kid. And the county of Lincoln votes Pat Garrett, who is a Republican, into office as sheriff. And Billy the Kid is thereby being chased now by someone with a real interest in killing Billy the Kid. Because Pat Garrett knows uh, that this is what future preferment kind of depends on. And over the course of the uh, of the Lincoln County War, Garrett and his men drive Billy the Kid and his men out of town. Billy is eventually captured uh, sentenced to hang by a judge and escaped miraculously 13 days later. Uh, this is in 1881. And Garrett goes looking for Billy the Kid because he's still got the the warrant that says he can. And he uh, finds him hiding out uh, at the house of a guy named Pedro Maxwell. And Kid uh, is asleep. And Pat goes up into his room and Billy the Kid wakes up and Pat Garrett shoots him. And that is the end of Billy the Kid. Uh, the interesting thing here, or one of the, the thousand interesting things, we could talk about Billy the Kid all day, but one of the reasons brooded about for his miraculous escape is that he cut a deal with territorial governor Lou Wallace, the author of Ben-Hur and uh, whatever the opposite of hero <laughs> of the Battle of Shiloh is. And Lou Wallace is out there writing a tale of the Christ and cutting deals with Billy the Kid because Lou Wallace in theory, wanted to bring down the Santa Fe ring and that, that Billy the Kid was going to be his man uh, against the Santa Fe ring. This may be the kind of thing people who want Billy the Kid's story to be even better tell, but uh, I, I couldn't let Lou Wallace uh, get out of this story without being uh, name-checked.
0: Right. And and he's he's thinking that someday a uh, Russian director will make a crazy new version of my novel that no one will go and see.
1: Exactly. It'll be, uh, I think he's uh, technically a Kazakh director, isn't he?
0: I uh, bow to your knowledge of he, uh, the- Russian nationality,
1: but I believe uh, Kazakh ethnicity. Anyway. Anyway, we flash forward in time. Yes, we flash forward in time, uh, glancing over the fact that uh, Pat Garrett then became a Texas Ranger. And, uh, then after stopping being a Texas Ranger, possibly because the opportunities for graft were too limited or too big, depending on your opinion of, and there were a few more people that that needed killing along the way. Well, there's always people that needs killing. It's it's West Texas and Eastern New Mexico. There are probably people who need killing there. Even now, (laughs) um, the, the, the society is broken down uh, to that extent that the people that need killing ain't being killed, but not you dear listeners. No, obviously not you. That's crazy talk. You just show them your Patreon. When Pat Garrett comes a call and you mention you're a Patreon of the show and everything's fine. Um, anyway, he goes and he discovers a artesian well near Roswell, New Mexico, and he sets up a ranch at Roswell, New Mexico, because Pat Garrett has not finished being exciting and fun and weird. So we've got Lou Wallace and Roswell and Billy the Kid in his story. And then in New Mexico, a fellow named C- Colonel Albert Jennings Fountain disappears near White Sands. And, uh, they're never found. Uh, they send Apache scouts. They send the Pinkertons. The whole Republican party goes looking for him because he's a big, important Republican. And, uh, Pat Garrett is appointed sheriff because he's a reliable Republican, remember, of the county around White Sands and starts investigating the murder like a crazy person. And, uh, he goes in and they, they have a gunfight in which, uh, one of his deputies is killed. He ends the gunfight with a truce. The uh, fugitives surrender to the law, and the law finds them, of course, not guilty because the law is owned by the Democrats in White Sands. And uh, Pat Garrett recognizes a, a bad thing when he when he sees it and um, uh, goes on to become collector of customs in El Paso, appointed by Ted, Teddy Roosevelt, right? You're making it sound like the Republicans and Democrats are just rival gangs. I'm making it sound like that because in New Mexico in the past, that's what it was, Robin. Obviously, now they're both respectable organizations that would never dream of appointing hardened criminals to high office. (laughs) Um,
0: So uh, in in the story of uh, uh, the fountain disappearance, uh, we begin to see the shadowy hand of a man named Albert Fall. Uh, who will go on to be uh, interesting in another uh, big historical uh, story that hasn't quite happened yet. And uh, we'll talk about that uh, a bit more in October when we come back to mm-hmm. talk about uh, the Teapot Dome scandal. But he's famously the guy who said uh, at a congressional hearing, I think it was, the, the I drink your milkshake line about uh, stealing oil. Uh, so he's he's got a big role in uh, in history to come. But who is Albert Fall at this point? Albert Fall at this point
1: is a lawyer and the sort of star lawyer of the Democratic political ring in southeastern New Mexico. And one of his insights was there are a lot of Spanish-speaking voters here in New Mexico. And so his law firm, if you were a, 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 a Hispanic in New Mexico, his law firm would do work for you pro bono and sure enough that means that you would vote democrat because you just went and the the democrat lawyer was nice to you and the republican lawyer was like get off our land we need it for grocery stores and or cattle and so the um uh he very rapidly built up a fairly large fairly terrifying to the republicans uh political machine and became sort of a, a crusading lawyer type guy that they loved in the west and still love even now today and uh was um sort of the point man for the uh El Paso-centered, although it's in New Mexico, uh, ring of, um, uh, of, 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 of corrupt grocery stores and cattle and, and whatnot that was going on in the other part of the state. But that because the Republicans held all the reins of power in Santa Fe could only be a thorn in the side and hated rival of the Santa Fe ring.
0: So ultimately, what brings Garrett down is a dispute over goats, but it's a dispute over goats that Albert Fall may have a bit of an influence over so you want to take us inside this
1: okay um garrett uh has a ranch um he's uh mortgaged his ranch to the hill his artesian well has not made the fortune that he wanted it to be his skill set is really more in plugging owl hoots than it is in managing money and so there are probably problems of that
0: sort and he winds up terribly poor he just misses out on getting to be the uh santa fe prison superintendent because he's uh, caught uh, cohabiting with a uh, a woman named Mrs. Brown, who is not his wife, and that causes a... Uh, a the scandal. A scandal. And so he, he loses uh, that option to be back in the law enforcement biz, and so he's uh, uh, financially reduced, and... And his son is uh, leasing a ranch in an
1: attempt to make money raising cattle, and his partner is a guy named Jesse Wayne Brazell, and Jan- Jesse Wayne Brazell uh begins bringing in goats to graze on this ranch that they both have leased. Goats, of course, tear the grass up by the roots and create a desert and are bad ecologically and are worse if you're trying to raise cattle. And it is though Jesse Wayne Brazel is an operative of the Democratic ring, as indeed he is. And the goal that Jesse Wayne Brazel is having is to drive Pat Garrett into complete bankruptcy and insolvency so that he can never again be a problem for the Democratic machine in southeastern New Mexico, which is, of course, where Pat Garrett, ardent Republican gunman, lives and does not flourish.
0: So this leads to a, a bushwhacking. Right. Um,
1: there is a great bibbity bob about what are we going to do about this ranch? Stop doing the goats. And brazel says, oh, don't worry, I have partners who've agreed to buy the goats. And one of my partners is a guy named Jim Miller. Another of his partners is uh, Carl Adamson uh who is a guy who is a uh, a local uh, land owner and so they've all agreed to buy the goats and then Brazil says oh there are 1800 goats not the 1200 that we've been talking about it's as though i've deliberately destroyed this negotiation what are the odds um <laughs> it's and the garrett- classic
0: goat overestimation maneuver
1: right and so garrett and adamson and brazil agreed to uh, talk it out um uh, and and have a meet up to to settle this like men uh but not like men of the west like men of the east Garrett and Adamson get into a wagon in Las Cruces, New Mexico and um uh, head outside La Cruces. Uh, Brazil appears on horseback to meet them and at the moment where uh Adamson and Garrett are urinating, someone shoots Pat Garrett through the back of the head with a rifle. Scarcely sporting. Pat Garrett's shotgun is found not just unloaded, not just in its holster, but disassembled in its holster. There is no way Pat Garrett could have got a shot off uh, when he is arrested for the crime, Jesse Wayne Brazell, who of course had been arguing with Pat Garrett for months and months and months, says, it was self-defense, Pat Garrett pulled on me, and I shot him. Um, And it turned out that that was such a compelling defense that the trial took one day, called no witnesses aside from the doctor who examined the body, and Brazell was found not guilty. And it is as though Brazell's attorney was Albert Fall, and it is as though the attorney for the killers of Albert Jennings Fountain was Albert Fall, and it is though the judge who tried the case was appointed by the Democratic ring in El Paso, and so the result is the death of Pat Garrett was officially ruled a death by misadventure, I suppose, or that it's an open case because no, no, one, was condi- no one was convicted. No one was convicted, but I I don't know if Brazil um uh, is in official uh, legal record the person who killed, though not murdered. Pat Garrett. But either way, he did not. Right. He he did not do it. No way, no how. Thank you very much. And um, uh, stop phoning in.
0: Right. And uh, there is some historical dispute over which of the uh, people along in that posse were the one who, who was it who pulled the trigger? Uh, So other possible suspects. uh... This is
1: because historians like to make problems for people. (laughs) There is a very clear person who killed uh, Pat Garrett, and it is super clear and um, uh, a child of two could tell you who so it you, is.
0: So you definitely say it's Brazil.
1: No, it's not Brazil. Who is it? It's Jim Miller, mysterious goat owner, James Brown Miller, who is also known by an odd coincidence as killing Jim Miller, because <laughs> as a former Texas Ranger, now, he hired not out to that kill people. That's,
0: that's prejudicial that his name <laughs> was Killin' Jim. He was a
1: contract killer. He killed people before he shot Pat Garrett. He killed people after he shot Pat Garrett. Oh, by the way, we should just point out that Pat Garrett is shot in uh, 1908. That that is our our date yep. uh, for people who want to put things on calendars. I think we scampered past that in our excitement to get to the. I think we uh, made it side. laid
0: that really early on. And, but it, but at any rate, now I was sort of pulling for it to be on the grounds of who has the best nickname.
1: I'm pulling. I'm pulling for the grounds that why would a hired killer be buying goats if he's not being brought into this whole situation so that he can kill. Pat Garrett. I'm That's not the saying you're wrong. You. I
0: just want to say the name Archie Print
1: Road. <laughs> you just want to say that name. Yeah. And this is how Western history is written. Exactly. People, is look, people look, want but, to say. It uh, already and, has more fidelity to history than most Western mo- uh, films do. <laughs> okay. Well, um, uh, first of all, Killin' Jim is a better nickname than Print. So on
0: that level, I still win. I, I, I wasn't competing with you. Again, I just wanted to say Archie, Archie
1: Print, Print Road. who was the name. silent partner of Jesse Wayne Brazil? I, I would
0: say Killin' Jim bit on the nose and yeah. perhaps a bit of a giveaway
1: of <laughs> giveaway well it, apparently it was not giveaway enough for trained lawman pat garrett to say hey why is a contract killer named Killin' jim trying to buy my goats right or perhaps he didn't say that but there's only so much you can do if a guy with a rifle is uh
0: lurking around the hills to shoot you so this is a case definitely where the messiness uh and the politicization of Real Western history has never really been reflected in uh, film. That even when you see revisionist takes on these figures, uh, as you would, for example, in the Peck and Paw film, uh, what's the name of the Peck and Paw film? It's Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett? No, it's, it's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, right? Billy the Kid, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that even though those are revisionist films, they don't really get into this side. Of uh Western history in the movies because so it would take forever to explain it it would have to be uh, you have to convince an h b o to do another western series and then uh you know build this up over multiple episodes because it's it 's not movie length exposition it's uh, yes well, if it
1: was hbo they'd they 'd kill Pat Garrett in the, in the third episode and then do nothing for three more seasons <laughs> not that i 'm better. <laughs> No, not your better. Anyway, um uh, I believe when we have begun blaggarding HBO, we while speaking with the voice and in the spirit of Pat Garrett have perhaps concluded our examination of his crime. Well,
0: be- before you go, just is there a a sort of a a sum up conclusion that you draw from these events some sort of thing to put it in uh The broader uh, context other than the, you know, the the water that he drank, the Roswell aliens took it and they drank his milkshake.
1: I I think that the broader, I mean, the broader historical context is what we just said, that remembering that a lot of these range wars, these, you know, romantic gunfights are actually the continuation of politics by other means, as Clausewitz would say. Um, and that they are the working out of powerful economic systems, as Marx would say. And whichever you believe describes history best, they both describe the West. It's just the West did it better because it had cowboys. Right.
0: Because the typical film usually has there's one evil cattle baron mm-hmm. and against the, the good lawmen. But the real history is often two equally venal uh, cattle barons and their different uh, partisans. And their different bought lawmen who do their bidding. Although, of course, you get occasional lawmen
1: who, while they may be bought, are still honest, and that would include, I think, Pat Garrett. I mean, you can say what you want about Pat Garrett's pre-law career, but once he became a lawman, he never shot anyone who wasn't already a, crimin- a criminal, and he did so entirely within the, the range of his of his warrant, which even beats out the great sainted Wyatt Earp, and he um uh, honestly investigated uh, the murder of Albert Jennings Fountain and did his best in, in a case that pretty much no one in New Mexico uh certainly at the time really wanted to get solved because it didn't get solved um so you know if Pat he was Garrett, willing to
0: be bought, he might have not gotten killed over a bunch of goats
1: exactly he was a he was a um he was a an as honest a man as New Mexico could afford and uh it it paid off by the side of the road in las cruces.
0: Right. And also 1908 is pretty late for uh, murdering and killing to still be settling things in the West. It's later than
1: we think. Yes, it is later than we think. Although there are cases, I think in Oklahoma, there's gunfights and whatnot down into almost 19, almost World War One era, like 1909, I think there's a big gunfight in Oklahoma, although I would have to go look it up.
0: Well, perhaps that's a future segment. And on that note, let's really go into our next uh, commercial message and out again into another segment. And what happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon
1: is the template on which... That sounds all fa- fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best
0: of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
1: Logically Related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't
0: forget, that's F E N I X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like John Rogers, Ray Slikinski, Drew Clowery,
1: Andrew Laliberti, and Arc Dream Publishing.
0: Hey everybody, once more we're rocketing back in time to uh, Gen Con 2016, and uh, another segment of Ken and our Robin talk to someone else, and in this case, Ken and Robin are talking to Will Hindmarch, a designer and uh, graphic designer extraordinaire. And uh, Will, uh, we have a main topic for you, but before that, uh, as you know, We have both overt and covert self-promotion on this show, so we would like to invite you to engage in some overt self-promotion for Always Never Now.
2: Oh, for sure. Uh, It's my pleasure. Always Never Now is a pay-what-you-want cyberpunk uh, self-contained adventure slash sort of RPG based on the Lady Blackbird system with lots of new innovations to give it its cyberpunk edge uh, with people with cybernetic arms and cybernetic legs and uh, exo-arms and all kinds of great fun digital skin technologies. Uh, and it's uh, available at Now and available at uh, or DriveThruRPG and available at uh, alwaysnevernow.net, dot net, which will of course just take you straight to DriveThruRPG. So do that. And uh, it's based on a, an old high school campaign actually that we played um, that was kind of a combination of cyberpunk and Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez isms all packed into one big thing. And then I got a chance to go back and revisit it. And so it's something very near and dear to my heart. In addition to I think being a pretty good thing to play. So.
0: So I thought for the main bit of the interview we would talk about something that Ken, who cannot be wrong, uh, says you are a master of, which is the use of music while GMing. So, uh, Ken, maybe you can describe uh, for our audience uh, Will's skill in this area.
1: Yeah, but as you know, normally using music while GMing involves uh, hitting uh, play and uh, having the Indiana Jones soundtrack on, (laughs) and then the fun, exciting part that everyone likes comes in at the wrong time and it ruins the mood, and you feel like a jerk, and your players feel like jerks, or they're just talking about Indiana Jones, and the whole system has gone to hell (laughs) and blown up in the wall. And that's why people who are not good at running games with music, I feel, don't run games with music, because it's yet another thing that can go wrong, and who needs that kind of service in your life? Will, of course, being braver, better, and kinder than most people, has stepped up and figured out a method, and I don't know the method, which is why we're talking to you, if you're in a game with Will, he will have a playlist, I assume, that's yep. set up some sort yep. of Spotify technology, perhaps. Again, we'll learn all about this. And as you're playing, he sets the scene, and he has music that matches the scene, and it's does what scene music is supposed to do. It amplifies emotional themes. It sets up unconscious motivations and thoughts in your head. You're not involved in it any more necessarily than if you're in a movie and you're watching and saying oh, man, I hope the soundtrack helps Megan Fox fight off robots. You're not saying that ever, but the music is doing something. And similarly, when you're in a game that Will is running, the music is doing something, even if you're focused entirely, which you are, on your uh, play of the character and on Will's presentation of the world. So how the hell, Will, do you do that?
2: Uh, the, well, first of all, the technology that I happen to use is... Uh, I use playlists in iTunes. I've used Spotify. It's just as good. Uh, I just happen to have all of my music in iTunes already, so yeah, I do that. Right. Um, I used to use CDs. I used to burn CDs specifically for certain adventures or campaigns for this purpose. Oh, my gosh, right? I mean, I mean I, that was all music that I had bought, but I was remixing it making little mixtapes for particular
0: right. Now, did you have sessions. one of those uh, pterodactyl uh, CD burners? That the, the pterodactyl beak would burn it, like on uh, the, fl- the Flintstones?
2: Yes, absolutely, of course. Yeah. I mean, because this was when... That was that was the technology yeah. available at the time right, when we were right. burning CDs, yeah. uh, and now I have a tendency to use when I can. If we play at my uh, my home, I use the Apple TV to receive the signal from my computer, so that I don't have to pre-plan the whole playlist. I can hop around as necessary to do that scene setting that you're talking about. Um, and the short version of how it works actually is is it is one part very simple and one part fairly complicated. And the simple part is exactly the scene setting, which is that I use the various film scores and I, I use almost exclusively non. Uh, audio or non-lyrical music. I use almost nothing with, with uh, uh, audio samples from movies or nothing with lyrics and what have you um, to set the scene. And I'm a big song, soundtrack kind of aficionado anyway, uh, so I have quite a supply of those to draw from. Uh, but I use those not only to get a sense of atmosphere and of topicality, but also of pacing. And that's something that I do, I think, as like a second channel, a second audio channel that I have in addition to my voice. Because, one, I have a tendency to set scenes either too fast or too slow for what my intent is based on whether or not I get distract myself with the environment or distract myself with talking about character and the soundtrack keeps me on the measure so that I don't go on too far. So in a way it's like a metronome. It is very much, yeah, Yeah. a metronome so that I won't talk too long on one topic because I'll remember that I have a cue coming up or the track's only two minutes or whatever it is. Um, And I love tracks that I can repeat that are like long six minute tracks that have... Uh, atmosphere that they can go ahead and loop and not be annoying so they don't have a big opener they don't have a big burst of sound at the beginning or a big burst of sound at the end Uh, and if they do that then we can just have it play for however long the players are in control of the scene they decide essentially how long the track will go and i change the track and we change scenes Uh, other times i will change the track to change the scene which is the indicator to say I think we're done here, and oh my gosh, something big and exciting just happened because I'm now playing loud, bombastic music. Or I will use the audio cue in response to what they're doing, in which I'll say that they have clearly changed the tenor of the scene, and so that's part of the way that the players sometimes do feel like they have that control over the soundtrack, is they'll say something to an NPC, and I'll say, oh great, I have this track from like uh, uh, Trevor Jones' score for From Hell has a track I particularly like that opens with this really menacing set of strings that I'll I'll play that, my players now are, are, are cued, and trained to know that that means that we said something that made him mad. That's going to make him villainous. It's going to make him do terrible villainy things. Uh, and that's kind of the simple part. It's just picking that measure and that tone that I like out of various movies and, and video games and such. The hard part is when I the parts that I pick for the crescendos, for the endings. Um, and I don't pick them in advance to the extent that it often looks like that I do. I have a stable of them that, that I say this is a great intro to a fantasy setting. This is a great moment when the dragon dies, or this is a great moment when they slay a monster. Uh, and then because I know the music so well, because I've been writing to it or what have you, I just kind of vamp when I talk, and to fill the time until I know when the crescendo is about to happen. And then I talk a little slower, or I talk a little faster, and I talk a little louder, and I work my own tenor as best I can so that I happen to get to the crescendo when <gasps> the music swells and I describe the sun rising over the kingdom or the castle's body collapsing, the, the, the dragon's body collapsing the castle or what have you. Um, so a lot of it is practice and then um, a lot of it is actually responding to the players anyway so that it feels like I'm on point when it's really that they and I are both on point.
1: Yeah, it, it always feels completely organic in the, in the mood but also totally controlled, which is the part that I find utterly impossible you know, when I tried to do it years and years ago hmm. um, and, and so it's a, it's a really great uh, lived experience to play in now is it uh, it sounds like it's just really a lot of it is practice like you say but it, a lot of it is vocabulary you have right. this vast quantity of movie soundtracks and Will is one of the great guys to see a movie with and then argue about the score after with. (laughs) Uh, Terrific. And uh, God forbid you should be the third person at dinner after we've both seen the Bourne movie. (laughs) As as we just recently As we discovered. Um, So who did you subject to that? Poor Sarah. My My wife Sarah, yeah. Who promised an oath before God to have to put up with this nonsense forever. (laughs) She can't get out now. Um, Unless Sheila pulls a crisscross, obviously. We can't rule out. Um... So when you so is is that really the, the focus of it? is it's just the the, the the having that huge vocabulary, the musical vocabulary that you have, and then also just practice to know how to set that pace in the moment, or is there another quality that sort of comes in orthogonally that you bring as well?
2: that 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 intersecting aspect, and it's essentially what makes the practice so easy for me if, uh, as a process is that I use the playlist, not it's not the last thing I do. I use it as I'm prepping a game session. Very often I won't prep anything but the soundtrack. I'll be like, Uh, uh, I know that I've created a a Hunt the Serial Killer story. So I need some chase music. And I need some, is this going to be a chase music? And I need some crime scene music. And I need some music for when they catch him and they haven't decided what to do with him. Um, But I may not, I don't plan to use all of it. And so to me, it's a great metaphor for the kind of half improv style of a lot of play where I think about the possibilities and they literally take the form of track lists uh, or of individual tracks in the list. And I say if this happens then I know I have a track for it and if they surprise me I have a sense of roughly what emotional way I will portray it because that's the music that I have available Mm -hmm. so I mean I'll often create playlists that are two or three times the length of the actual music that I end up using which, which in this case I should point out is for say a three or four hour game session I almost never am actually using four hours of music because there are points where I let it play out or I let it loop or I just kind of have a couple of tracks that are vaguely atmospheric but that just kind of I let bleed on and I don't worry about it Uh, But so for four hours of play, I'm often building anywhere between three and six hours of playlist. Right. But it's not as calibrated. There are three or four or ten tracks that are very highly calibrated. And then there are a lot of uh, soundtracks, especially, that I can use that will fill the 20 minutes of how are we going to do the scene, uh, combat, those sorts of questions. So so when you
0: get a hold of a new soundtrack and you're still buying them all on itunes rather than uh,
2: yeah i buy some on, on cd when they're, they're the limited releases but yeah
0: oh okay the, the the special stuff that you get from the guy right um, <laughs> so when you're first uh you've cracked open a new soundtrack do you have a bunch of sort of holding pen playlists that you do you have a you know a, a ominous scenes playlist and a, a action fight scene playlist that you sort of dock them into to remember, or how do you... What what I do is I I arrange
2: them uh, by project or campaign for the most part, so that I have a sense of the overall... So they're contributing kind of to the mood board of that game or that campaign. Uh, And then inside of that, they're arranged vaguely narratively, which is to say that the action stuff is kind of in the middle, and I have the opener stuff at the beginning and the closing stuff at the end, and so that I'm scrolling down throughout the session, and then kind of picking my choices out of that part of the list as I move.
0: So are you casting a soundtrack of this campaign is going to be the neon demon soundtrack
2: absolutely yeah, yeah when almost anytime I get a soundtrack I have a sense of um, and it may live in three or four different playlists at a time because of how many games it applies to uh, so various soundtracks like uh, I was surprised as a good example might be the Sicario soundtrack which is which is a great set of atmosphere and tone um, and also not instantly recognizable I'm very careful with soundtracks right. that have the James Bond theme or the Indiana Jones theme in them um, because those will automatically create even if it's appreciative laughter, they will create laughter when they're heard yeah. or, or, a, or a bombastic, ah ha ha.
1: They'll take you out of the other story exactly. and into a different story. Exactly.
0: So, ideally, you want everyone else in your group to know soundtracks less than you do because you don't Correct. want someone else going, oh, this is the ravenous soundtrack that Right. David so, Elmer. Uh, right. yeah, Michael Nyman and David Elmer, and I just didn't expect them to work together, but you know, that. Right, really to not want, you don't want to, want that to go anymore. off on that spiel. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Since well, I am that guy, yeah, right. I just right. don't you do you it, want, and then we don't right have that problem. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of that is also the notion that, that by building off of soundtracks that the players don't know so well, eventually they become what the reference points become is our own campaign or previous campaigns that they played with me, so that they hear those strings and they say, or they hear the, the sweeping music that, that says, "Oh, we're going to start. We're starting actual play." That their version
1: of Star Trek fight music. Exactly. You well, know, uh, they hear their version of dun 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 dun, yeah. and oh, we're going to get down. Everybody right. get a double-headed axe. Everybody grab your initiative dice. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Obviously the music for Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff is provided by the great James Semple, mm. uh, who has written personal soundtracks now for Robin and myself.
2: And for Eternal And for Eternal Lies. you
1: also for Eternal Lies. What is your favorite thing of James Semple's to use in games and for what But if, if I mean obviously you've got your your Row of crossbow quarrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, which of James's crossbow quarrels is the sharpest and will fly the truest?
2: Oh, of course, and of course, favorites are something I do very poorly with. But that's a that's a great question. The the way I'm going to choose to answer it, if I can, is to single out the the because first of all, his knife blockade score is terrific. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it, yeah. That, that's marvelous. I love it. And uh, uh, the music from Stone Thief is, I think, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and part of it is for me. The music for Eternal Lies is bound forever to Eternal Lies. And right. That's not true for everybody. So when I say when I don't cite Eternal Lies, that's not me saying that I think it doesn't pour it out. Right. It just doesn't pour it out for
1: me because to right. me it's an Indiana Jones yeah. thing. Yeah, you, you you can't use that to run a um, uh, mermaid romance scene because you're thinking, oh my God, they're all going to die in the crater. <laughs> right, right. Because I have those <laughs> other right. connections yes.
2: to it. Uh, for me, there's and I'm going to forget the name of it. Unfortunately, there's a track in Eyes of the Stone Thief that score. From the the, the giant thirteenth age adventure, mm-hmm. um, which uh, which was used in the the video trailer for it, mm-hmm. in part, but has this uh, combination of sort of suspense and otherworldliness that really jumped out at me. I think also because that's the one, the first of the of those scores that I heard, without yet having read the source material, right? Because right. I heard the soundtrack and then I got to read the book, mm-hmm. um, and so I heard the music as music, in a way that, like the Knights Black Agents music, and also the, the way that the, the track themes work in it, is that I'm immediately, of course, picturing. Specifically, Jason Bourne versus Dracula in those right. bits and it, and it evokes it perfectly. So in kind of the same way that I have the thing with Eternal Eyes, I feel like that as a composition it was uh, uh, two or three not not the not necessarily the fight scenes but it was the stuff that has the equivalent to me of the music the theme the medallion from uh, Rages of the Lost Ark which is that it's the mysticism music. Mm-hmm. Right, the yeah. music that draws you in and says something bigger is going on here. And, this, and James does that stuff really well which is of course great for, for such genres as, as nice right. black agents exactly. in the 13th age. So, so-
0: is there, uh, uh, for people who want to start to use music, mm-hmm. the objective is to accumulate a whole ton of music, mm-hmm. and obviously the much more affordable way to do that is Spotify. Right. So uh, if you are want to point people to a bunch of things that are, you know, don't have the Star Trek theme, don't have the James Bond theme, that will be like Sicario. Uh, What are some other recommendations that you would point people to for great soundtracks to get
1: started? Utility infielder soundtracks. Uh,
2: Absolutely. Uh, One of the ones that, much to my surprise, I get a ton of play out of and and many of your players will not have heard is, I'm going to say this name terribly, but Olivier de Riviere, uh, who did uh, the soundtrack for a game called Remember Me, which is from the people who went on to make the teenager time-traveling girl game. Anyway, he made a game uh, the soundtrack for a game called Remember Me from French uh, uh, producers Don't Not Entertainment um, and the game was not a big hit but it has a great aesthetic and in that soundtrack for example he does they recorded the pro- Prague Philharmonic Orchestra playing his themes and then he took them into the computer and kind of glitched them uh, so they have a great cyberpunk operatic big sweeping music so that's Remember Me that's a great one but the, some of the artists to look for Bear McCreary who did the music for Circle Galactica the reboot um, just about everything he's done has been phenomenal if I have any uh, warning about Bear McCree music, it is only that he has a couple, like so many composers that are very prolific, has a couple of go-to sounds that, that if you're if your players are fans of one, they will start to think that they are hearing Battlestar Galactica in Outlander, or Outlander in Black Sails, or Black Sails back in Battlestar Galactica. Uh, but those are great scores with lots of different kinds of music and texture. And it is impressive that a bear can produce
1: soundtrack music. Well, that's the digital age, right? Yeah. I mean, he doesn't yeah. have to get his hands inside the strings now.
2: And, and he plays the hurdy-gurdy, and if you've never seen a bear play the hurdy-gurdy. I get thee to YouTube John Powell who did the Bourne scores has quite a variety of scores that are not quite as uh, that, that weren't as earth shattering to the industry as the Bourne scores were but that are just as good um, and uh, a lot of the those soundtracks I'm mean, Spotify has a great set of, of free to play music and is a great place to build those sort of playlists um, John Ottman's X-Men soundtracks are surprisingly good and also have sounds super heroic but not a lot of people tend to hum the X-Men theme the way they do Superman so it's not always as
0: intrusive and and Spotify to just go and actually pay for, is totally worth it. Oh yeah, absolutely. For, You know, basically a little more than ten bucks a month, you get access to two thirds of recorded music. <laughs> right, that's not a bad deal. And people. it's mostly the good two
1: thirds. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like oh, this is the two thirds that's all pentatonic Japanese classical music that I don't get. Although this they is do just have lots of that. Yeah.
2: This is just people
0: covering John Gage's Four Thirty Three time. Mean. <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, so have you ever considered? Taking a uh, music list, putting it on random, keeping track of what it played, and then designing a scenario to hit those points—that I haven't done as much as I've done it live in play, in
2: which I told the players uh, that there are a certain number of action cues in the soundtrack, and it is on random, and when they come up, the bad guys will show up. So be careful and get <laughs> and get get the your missions done before the bad guys
1: show up. As as uh, as Raymond Chandler once said. Uh, uh, if uh, you get stuck on the story, have two men come in the door with an awesome soundtrack. <laughs> That's right, and <laughs> an uh, awesome sting. We,
2: we did a, a scenario that was obviously that was called a Nakatomi type situation, which is obviously a diehard reference, in which uh, I they know that uh, the FBI shows up when the soundtrack changes to this soundtrack. When you, and they could hear the I mean, they were very telltale soundtracks, and then the uh, uh, the bad guys will complete their plan. When this time, this much time has gone by, and we will know that has happened because the music will have changed. You will hear when you hear lyrics. You are too late. They're about to detonate the explosives. That kind of stuff. Um, so I've used those sorts of things, and I've I've thought about trying to do scenarios for publication or for pay what you want type release that have implicitly or explicitly a soundtrack linked to them to kind of help teach this process. Uh, but I honestly am not entirely sure where where to begin with that. In the sense of I- I'm I'm concerned that if I do that, I'll have to do it six times before I start feeling like I've really rolled up my sleeves and gotten started
0: right. so uh, when people want to contact you uh, to alert you to the fact that they want you to do this <laughs> uh, where do they find you uh,
2: you can find me at wordstudio.net at wordstudio.tumblr.com and at gameplaywright.net well thank you so much uh, Will Heimarch for talking to us thank you guys thanks Will <laughs>
0: When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos.
1: But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security
0: agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's
1: only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agent that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the
0: home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing.
1: In oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. The
0: gray alien hovering overhead. The calcified, petrified battery dug out of the Jurassic stone layer, And, of course, uh, the alien big cat, screaming out on the moor, tell us we once more entered the confines of the mysterious Elliptony hut. And speaking of uh, dangerous animals who perhaps want to uh, rip our legs off, let us talk uh, this time about a topic that we've teased earlier and realized that we hadn't ever really covered. And uh, when you remember that you haven't covered the beast of Gévaudan. podcast etiquette requires you to cover the beast of Gévaudan. This happens in France, uh, between 1764 and 1767 during the reign of Louis the 15th. And this is one heck of a beast with a long kill list. If you assume the beast was acting alone. So Ken, where do you start telling us the story of the beast of Gévaudan?
1: First of all, I say go watch brotherhood of the wolf, which is awesome. Um, Brotherhood of the Wolf is magnificent and is actually still less crazy than the Beast of Gavadon story. It manages to make it, uh, if anything, simpler and more straightforward than the real Beast of Gavadon story. you might
0: have to do in a future film. And this is yes. straightforward by French uh, science fiction movie standards. Crazy so adventure that nutball
1: standards. No, it is not a straightforward film. But yes, quite a movie it is and quite a beast this was. La bête anthropophage du Gévaudan, the man-eating beast of Gévaudan. Uh we begin in June of 16- 1764 when a young cowherd girl in Langone is walking the cows or whatever it is cowherds do, herding them I suppose technically, and she saw a wolf the size of a cow and uh the bulls that were with her um in the herd lowered their horns and the beast slunk off, but Everyone knew that that was what started killing people, peasant girls and children all over Gevodan, missing or bit out. Uh, their throats would be torn out. Their livers would be torn out. um Sometimes the beast would leave, you know, a, a leg behind or something. And every now and again, it would leave a survivor who would describe the beast as an enormous wolf with a wide chest, a long snout, giant fangs, and a thin, hairless, puffy tail- Sometimes they would describe it as jumping 30 feet. Sometimes they said that it had a spine of stiff black fur running the length of the creature. And when beasts are eating even the poorest of Louis XV's subjects, he cares so much that he sends a troop of cavalry to occupy the province. And it turns out that a troop of cavalry occupying the province is A, a terrible way to catch a beast, and B, a (laughs) great way to make everyone in Gevodon super angry at King Louis XV. So, uh, he says, I'm gonna rethink this plan, and he sends a super famous, uh, wolf hunter, and just let's stop. Yes. And remember <laughs> that in 1765, there is a super famous wolf hunter. This implies that there's a lot of wolf hunting to be done. And now look at what game you are running at the table and say, why? Why is my game not as cool as a professional, super famous wolf hunter? In 1765. Because we and
0: designers have been remiss in not creating the
1: wolf hunter character class. We have really. been. Anyway, and his name is Jean-Charles-Marc-Antoine antoine Vome deneval And Deneval and his son Jean-Francois Deneval go to Gévaudin, and they begin hunting him through the winter of 1765. They brought eight specially trained wolf hunting bloodhounds, and they hunt a bunch of wolves. They kill like a zillion billion wolves. And, but just mook wolves, just but henchmen, just hench wolves, exactly. And, uh, they killed 74 wolves. Uh, the beast, um, uh, loses the numbers battle, but wins the moral battle by only killing about 30 peasants while Deneval is out hunting around. Uh, Deneval, uh, has to be recalled because famous wolf hunter or no, he's not stopping the beast. And so the king's personal gun bearer, you were thinking the king's most professional wolf hunter was the alpha character. Not even. This is the guy who is then replaced by the James Coburn character who shows up. And this guy is Antoine de Botarne, is what he is named, um uh or Francois Anton, and he is the king's gun bearer. He arrives in midsummer of 1765, and he kills the beast. He kills Le Loup de Chaze, the great wolf of Chaze, which is where they kill him, and um uh he is uh sixty kilograms and uh, six feet long, which is very big for a wolf. And he takes that wolf and he stuffs him and sends him to Versailles. And everyone says, yay, the beast of Gevodan is dead. Hurrah. And then the beast starts killing more people because guess what? Antoine de Bautern didn't kill the beast either, but the king is sick of hearing all this nonsense and forbids anyone from talking about the beast of Gévaudan because now people are turning it into a propaganda thing saying, oh, is there some sort of rapacious thing that is killing the innocent women of France and perhaps maybe the king is involved? And um, uh, they would, you know, like, equate the beast with whatever royal policy they didn't like and the king didn't like the talk. So the beast runs rampant uh throughout uh 1766. And in 1767, after its 96th kill, uh, the Marquis Dapcher organizes his own hunt. He's the local landowner and his poacher or one of the poachers in the area uh, named Jean Chastel shoots and kills the beast and they stuff that corpse and send it up to uh, Versailles where it is burned because they don't want any second beast for obvious reasons. And also the taxidermy was sort of weird. And that is the end, as far as we know, of the Beast of Gévaudan story, shot on Midsummer's Eve 1767, just as it appeared on
0: Midsummer of 1764. Now, the thing about wolves is, there's often more than one of them. Yes, (laughs) hundreds in some cases. So, do we know, uh, with any uh, reliability, or do we have any guesses as to whether the first beast that was supposedly killed, did it actually meet that description of uh, basically a, a dire wolf uh, in the in the Renaissance? Or uh, was that a, a faked up, uh, just regular wolf uh, who was then uh, over-described? Okay.
1: Dave Bautern's specimen has been examined by Paris National Museum uh, and they, the specialists came in and they examine it and they said that skin that Boterne shot was an African hyena. Now, they may be wrong. There may be any other kind of thing going on, but that's what they said. Now, um forensic scientists have gone and they've looked at uh, drawings of the wounds of the beast's kills and they've said that the beast was a dire wolf. It was just a very big wolf. Now, that said, Deneval, remember the greatest wolf hunter in France who killed 74 wolves while he's hunting the beast, he examined the spore and track marks of the beast and said it was not a wolf. So, the greatest expert on wolves, a guy with three points in wolf, says it's not a wolf. So, we don't know what it was. Uh, there is an argument, which I think is probably the right one, that it's a giant wolverine. Because wolverines, like the beast, lurk around trees. Um, it goes after your head and your throat. And it is a crazy monster that if you were hunting a wolf, you might not know to hunt a wolverine.
0: But, but that would have to be some giant, giant wolverine. Yeah. Regular wolverines are... Sort of small dock sized.
1: Yeah, but um, uh, as long as we're moving it from Canada to France, just right. like we're moving hyenas, which are also uh, much smaller than wolves, um, we are we're in a we're in a world of cryptozoological magic now, right? Um, and we have no idea what it is. Um, except that it also attacked uh, in Orel, Russia in 1893, which, like the beast and unlike wolves, killed during the summer. Like the beast and unlike wolves, only killed women and children. And like the beast and unlike wolves, had a long muzzle and a smooth tail. So, in Orel, Russia in 1893, whatever it was,
0: struck again. Dun-dun-dun. Right. So, obviously, uh, we can you know start to speculate as to the true facts of the matter. So, one possibility is there's A time rift through which prehistoric uh, wolves and or uh, giant wolverines and or giant prehistoric hyenas are are coming. Or the other option, of course, is is lycanthropy. And, of course, we know that the- And lycanthropy
1: was the theory
0: at the time. Yes. So let's go into the uh, lycanthropic implications at the time. All right. Um, The Catholic Church officially
1: described the uh, beast as a deformed wolf, which is to say a giant dire wolf, which was granted uh, powers by God to scour the sins of Gevodan. And you can imagine how popular that theory
0: was. (laughs) Nice nice throwing God under the bus there. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know,
1: it's either God or admit that the devil's out running around and you can't have that. Some people said that there was no beast that the Jesuits made up all of this to embarrass the king and to point the finger at the Huguenots, in the area, and that there was maybe a Jesuit um a death squad going around whacking out Huguenots and trying to drive them off of the area. So it, it's a range war again, and it's the Jesuits secretly running the thing. My favorite of the natural but not natural explanations is the Chastels, who apparently... May or may not have run a menagerie. Um, uh, his, uh, Jastel's son Antoine apparently owned a hyena. Maybe, oh, maybe they had hyenas in inventory. Exactly. They should have told us this before right. now. Um, and that they were either a, um, uh, a, a leatherface style clan of serial killers who are merely using their hyena as cover, or that they as dress their does. hyena in the skin of a boar, which is why it was bulletproof. And I have a number of questions about this. <laughs> and even yes, if it's a, a red mastiff, which is being, what I believe a French naturalist has proposed, um, wearing the skin of a boar, this does not make it six feet long, because mastiffs are not six feet long. And also they don't jump out of trees. There's so many things that Mastiffs yeah. <laughs> don't do, even wearing the skin of a boar, which gives them superpowers in France and nowhere else. So uh my I, I like the I like the Shastels of serial killers. I like the Shastels of serial killers and werewolves. I like the Jesuit werewolves uh being used to harry the uh Huguenot uh uh cow uh men out of Gevodon. And I like the idea that it's the Tarasque, Right. Because the Tarasque. <laughs> uh lives in the Rhone River which flows past Gevodon. it is um uh, a wolf the size of an ox uh in the old chronicles and it is stopped by Saint Martha with a blessed chalice Saint Martha nowhere to be seen but uh the Chastel bullet was supposedly blessed by an unknown priest
0: Chastel chalice sounds similar Exactly
1: and um uh so uh the tarasque is a is a monstrous beast that come that that shows up in the area and is a wolf the size of an ox and i think that that makes sense uh and then also you can drag nostradamus into it uh because uh there's a prophecy in uh the centuries prophecy 46 in century 8 where he says paul will die at noon three leagues from the rhone two will flee the oppressed district of the tarasque mars makes horror his throne the cock and eagle of france the three brothers which implies that Paul would be the village of Polak, which was attacked by the beast during the day. Uh, it's not three leagues from their own, but, you know, Nostradamus was high. Um, uh, Mars makes horror his throne, is obvious. Um, uh, and the three brothers, trois Frères, would be the cave in the Pyrenees, which is decorated famously by the image of the shaman wearing the wolf skin and horns. So, Nostradamus knows that it's a werewolf fighting the cock and eagle of France. So... I like the I like the Nostradamus werewolf Shastel, Jesuit cow theory almost as much as I like the time traveling dire Wolverine theory because that would explain Russia right All the Russia is is just an a isolated datum unless you introduce a time traveling dire Wolverine I think unless the Jesuits are up to more than we know right
0: uh, well you know there there could be sort of an a, a offshoot that went Orthodox and uh, was trying to cause mischief over there you never know um, so I basically uh as a scenario this sort of the problem is not that you don't know what to do with it but you don't know what to do with it because there's so many cool different opportunities and it could definitely be one of those ones where you have four different answers as to what could be going on and then when your player characters go in based on what they do you decide the one that they will find most delightful yet surprising turns out to be the the real answer
1: Right. You you can certainly present that. And even if you're doing a thing where they think it's supernatural and they discover, oh, no, it's just a clan of creepy serial killers, a la a really gross episode of Scooby-Doo, the creepy serial killers could still have magic powers to fuse animals into a chimera or um, any number of things.
0: Right. And we've already covered the media references. Are there others that you want to direct people to other than Brotherhood of the Wolf?
1: Um, I would like to give a shout out to Robert Louis Stevenson, who described, um, the Beast of Gevodan as the Napoleon Bonaparte of wolves, which <laughs> I think is a beautiful slam on Napoleon Bonaparte while also being <laughs> an awesome thing to say about the Beast of Gevodan. Robert Louis Stevenson, never a waste, in my opinion. And, um,
0: and is, where is that reference?
1: Uh, that's in, uh, Travels with a Donkey in the Savannah, which is one of his travel books, which are also really good and worth reading because Stevenson is just a great prose stylist as well as being a, a, a crazy person. and. Although the tuberculosis is probably part of it. Um, also, uh, there is a shout-out to Gevodan. Almost literally the only good thing in the Benicio del Toro Wolfman movie, but they say that the silver-headed cane um, uh, is, or the wolf-headed cane is from Gevodan. So, there's a little shout-out to it in the in the Wolfman remake.
0: Right. Which is otherwise garbage. Uh, I, I agree with you on that. And uh, now that we're uh, slating a movie we both didn't like, I think this is not only the end of this segment, but the end of yet another exciting episode so uh, thanks everybody for listening and we will join you again in your podcast ears next week Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Asdfalgum, Ark Dream, Dork Tower, and
1: Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at Patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such luminaries as Rick Neal, Christopher O, Andrew Miller, Paul S N, and Adam McDonald. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Heights. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will
0: talk about stuff.